Astro fears, brings the news, the race and dishes give different views. Are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien, and the title of this week's episode is Happy Equinox and Blackbody Radiation. Today is Wednesday, 21 September 2016. Each session, we'll have co-presenters. We'll have a special guest in both the professional and amateur fields of radio astronomy. We'll have a news roundup, a history and theory session from Nadezhda, and we'll talk to her very soon. To wrap up each show, we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky when we talk with Dr. Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. So let's get stuck right into today's show. Hello, Nadezhda. Hello, Brendan. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Nadezhda. What have you got for us this week? Well, a couple of episodes ago, we looked at the processes that resulted in radio line emissions, the 21-centimeter line, or the H1-alpha line in particular. In this episode, we will investigate the first of two important processes. Now, there are two main processes that result in continuum emissions. Firstly... Thermal processes, which depend on the temperatures of the emitter, for example, black body radiation. And secondly, non-thermal processes, which do not depend on the temperature of the emitter, such as synchrotron radiation, uh, like we spoke about the auroras on Jupiter caused by synchrotron radiation. But today we look at thermal black body radiation. Now everything in the universe with temperatures above absolute zero, which is minus 273 degrees Celsius, have some internal motion of the atoms inside it. So if we could freeze something to absolute zero, which we can't, even the atoms inside it would stop vibrating. The temperatures of an object is a measurement of the amount of random motion, the average speed exhibited by the particles that make up the object. The faster the particles move, the higher the temperatures we will measure. Now, a quick word about absolute zero. Absolute zero is zero degrees Kelvin on the Kelvin scale, which is minus 273.15 degrees Celsius on the Celsius scale. In the lab, we have cooled rhodium metal to a tiny bit above absolute zero. And in nature, the boomerang nebula, some 5,000 light years away from Earth, again in the constellation Centaurus, the boomerang nebula's temperature is measured at 1 degree Kelvin, which is minus 272.15 degrees Celsius, making it the coolest natural place currently known in the universe. So, if your hot date wants to go somewhere really cool, no, forget it, Brendan, I will leave the funnies to you. Thanks, Nadezhda, I think. Back to atoms, you see... 
Even the atoms in solid objects are vibrating, and the atoms in liquids are flowing and sloshing about, and molecules in gases are flying about and bumping into each other. The hotter the body is, the faster vibrations or the more collisions occur. When anything vibrates, acceleration is involved. And we learned in episode 1 or 2, I don't remember, that all accelerating charged particles, like the electrons in atoms, emit electromagnetic radiation. So all bodies above absolute zero must emit thermal radiation that we can detect. Thermal radiation simply means that a body's emission spectrum is determined by its temperature. The simplest case of thermal radiation emission is that of a black body. So any object which is capable of absorbing all the radiation which happens to fall on it is called a perfect black body, which will then emit a smooth spectrum of radiation which peaks at a frequency or wavelength dependent only on the object's temperature. A black body will always emit some energy at all wavelengths, and the higher the temperature of a black body, the more energy it emits. And the higher the temperature of the black body, the shorter the wavelength at which the maximum energy is emitted. So, when we look at an iron fire poker at room temperature, it appears black. Even though, even at room temperature, it is emitting infrared radiation. Our eyes just can't detect it. When we put the poker in a fire, it will absorb heat and above about 500 degrees Celsius, it will emit visible radiation and glow red hot. We take the poker from the fire and we can now feel the infrared radiation it is emitting. The poker is a black body. So, in radio astronomy, our sun can be seen as a black body. It emits radiation at a wide range of frequencies from long radio waves, not many of them, but enough for your Ruby Pay and Scott to detect cosmic static from the sun way back in the 1940s. Our sun also occasionally emits flares, which radiates with X-rays and gamma rays. Much of the sun's radiation can be seen in the visible part of the spectrum, and we can plot the sun's intensity or flux across the whole spectrum emitted, and we can find that our sun's radiation peaks at about 500 nanometers in the green part of the spectrum. So, if we heat our poker up to about 5,777 degrees Kelvin, also being a black body which absorbs and emits radiation, it would also emit a similar range of light frequencies which would also peak at around 500 nanometers. So, if you take a photograph of the stars, Brendan, and you don't overexpose your image, you will see that some stars have a blue tinge. Some appear white 
and others will have an orange tinge. This is because they are radiating as black bodies and the colors represent their temperatures. Blue ones are hotter than orange ones. Of course, it gets much more complicated than this for astronomers because after we easily discover its exact temperature, we can further analyze the absorption and emission lines in the spectrum of stars and see exactly which elements are present in a star and by seeing how the spectral lines shift, we can use Doppler calculations and tell how fast the star is moving towards us, or more commonly, how fast a star is moving away from us. All this is possible because we understand quantum mechanics and how all light, everything you see and much, much more, is produced by light being emitted by atoms as their state of excitation changes. Soon we will do a very short episode on quantum mechanics. It is something our students study intensively for about eight months. So we will only be painting the big picture and the basics of quantum theory. A final word about black body radiation, Brendan. There is no such thing as a perfect black body radiator. There are always complexities and interesting variations in every light curve we study. That's it for now. Paka, Brendan. Paka, Nadezhda. Thank you very much. Desvidaniya. Talk soon. And now we cross over to Adelaide in Australia to talk with Dr. Ian Musgrave from Astroblogger. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Now, you won't have to do what's up in the sky this week, Ian, because I've just been looking on Skippy Sky, and we've got a little window, but mainly what's up in the sky for us this week is clouds and rain. (laughs) (laughs) And clouds and more clouds and more clouds and more clouds and rain. Indeed. Well, here where I am in northeast Victoria, Ian, We've had our wettest winter and spring for many, many years. It's so lush, it almost hurts your eyes to look at it. And all our tanks are full and the dams are pretty much full. It's amazing. Uh, It's it's been pretty wet here. We've had torrential rain and the waterfall gullies closed off because of rain. Gorge Road is closed because of the landslides from the rain. But it's actually been absolutely beautiful today where we've had absolutely fantastic weather and sunshine. We had a narrow window where I was able to see the number of eclipses in between bands of rain, so it was quite nice. Excellent. Now, Ian, can you tell us what's been happening at the University of Adelaide this week? Well, one of my students, my PhD students, graduated this week. It was really quite good. So she managed to finally obtain her PhD. PhD studies take quite a, a great deal of time. Theoretically, it's supposed to take three years, but in practice, it may take something more like four, four and a half, as experiments take longer than you predict, and writing up takes a lot longer than you predict, especially if you have a small child. All these things are generally not factored into the entire let's get a PhD in three years scenario. So Abigail finally was 
was awarded her PhD. And of course, it was on the day when one of these fronts came through. So we stood together having our photographs taken together as the rain poured down and I, I got thoroughly sodden, but it was fantastic. Her PhD was on amyloid peptide called SEBI. Now, listeners may recall that I have two major themes in my research, both relating to toxicity towards nerves. One is toxicity of herbal medicines. The other is a toxicity of small peptides that are associated with Alzheimer's disease. But in this case, the peptide that Abigail was working on is called SEBI, short for a semen-enhancing violet peptide. It's a peptide found, strangely enough, in human semen, which greatly enhances the infectivity of the HIV virus. We're still not 100% sure how it works, but somehow it binds to the protein on the surface of the immune cells, which HIV binds to and accelerates the ability of HIV to infect cells. And what Abigail was looking at is the structure of SEBI it might be possible to make creams and gels as suppositories which would reduce the likelihood of HIV infecting someone by anywhere between a thousand fold to ten thousand fold which would be very useful in preventing HIV. That's fantastic Ian and congratulations to Abigail. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great effort by Abigail getting through. And, and the theme that listeners may observe as we talk week after week is how long it takes to develop science. Okay, and can you tell us, despite the clouds, what's up in the sky this week? Well, again, we're going into the future. What's up in the sky this week is Venus, Saturn and Mars. Venus made a very beautiful close approach to the bright star speaker, the brightest star in the constellation of Virgo, the Virgin. And now it passes away from Virgo, climbing higher and higher into the evening sky and being seen further and further into the dark night sky. But we'll now get the chance to see Venus in a quite dark sky. But as it leaves speaker behind in this week, we won't see it coming close to anything particularly interesting. We'll just get to glory in the brightness of Venus itself. If you're into astrophotography, you start imaging Venus and taking a record of its shape change as it goes from gibbous to half Venus phase and starting to develop crescent phase. Over the coming weeks and months, you'll start to see Venus noticeably increase in size. Over the next few weeks you won't see very much. Venus's size will stay relatively similar in low-powered telescopes but over the coming months you'll begin to see Venus swell in size. If you lift your eyes up from Venus above the western horizon you'll see our friends Antares and Saturn close close by each. They have been for several weeks and indeed months whereas Mars is now well beyond the pair and the triangle formed by Mars, Saturn and Antares is now very long indeed. But Mars is now heading into the teapot of Sagittarius. And if you were a pair of binoculars, you'll see that Mars is heading towards the Lagoon and Triffid Nebulas. Indeed, by the 25th of September, it'll be quite close to these. And between the 25th to the 30th, Mars is going to be pretty, about, about two finger widths away from both the Lagoon and the, from the Lagoon Nebula and about three finger widths away from the Triffid Nebula. 
they'll fit in very nicely in a pair of binoculars. And if you've got a telescope with a quite broad field eyepiece, very lovely indeed. Uh, Lagoon Nebula is uh, one of the classic telescopic objects, and even in a low-power field, it'll look very nice. You, you won't be able to get a, a really good image of these together. A Mars bringing out the Lagoon Nebula in astrophotography, Mars will be greatly overexposed, but you'll be able to get at least a, a halfway decent image of at least the red disk of Mars and some of the brighter stars as we're doing nebula together, so that'll be quite nice. Around about the 29th, 30th, Mars is going to be quite close to the uh, to some globular clusters. Now, remember back when it was Mars was close to M19, that was uh, really quite nice. And again, Mars is going to be close to a globular cluster called NGC 6544. Uh, that doesn't quite roll off the tongue as trippingly as M19, and it's also much dimmer. It's a magnitude 7.5 globular cluster as opposed to the 6.9 M19. Excellent. So do you have a tangent for us this weekend? Yes, I do. Have you ever wondered what moon dust smells like? I've never wondered that. What does moon dust smell like? Well, I'll tell you in a moment, but first I want to tell you how I got to this tangent on the 30th of September. The Rosetta spacecraft will be deorbited into a pit on the surface of 67P, not far from the pit where the Philae lander has got itself enmeshed. Yep. Around about this time, someone opined on a, uh, a internet or Facebook bulletin board, we went to the moon, why aren't there moon bases already? And... Uh, an issue there is, I mean, we, going to the going to the moon and staying on the moon is really expensive. For the cost of staying on the moon, you have to solve a whole lot, lot of problems. And this was brought to mind by on Monday. I went my sons to a talk by one of the ESA mission control, who were talking about they're, they're building a mock-up of a potential lunar base out at the German control centre, where they hand over the control of the internet. National Space Station as it goes around the world. America has two control stations. Europe has a control station. Russia has a control station. Japan has a control station. Yep. So as the International Space Station goes around the Earth, each section has a, a hands-over control to the next. But at the German control station, they're building a lunar station, a, 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 a lunar habitat mock-up to try and deal with the issues you would have about having a, a lunar a, a lunar base. And one of the big problems with a lunar base is the lunar dust. And when they first brought back some samples of the lunar dust, the lunar dust is basically it's as fine as flour, but it's composed of mostly tiny little bits of really sharp glass particles and they put the dust in these supposedly vacuum sealed tubes but the fine dust was so sharp it it sliced through the seals and air got in and destroyed the soil and it also damaged the space suits and damaged all the materials the big problem with any lunar base is the the lunar dust gets in and it's like having this serious fine sandpaper going through everything, mangling uh, airtight seals, uh, mangling spacesuits, and getting around the lunar dust is a serious problem for building uh, a space station because it gets into everything. And if you saw the photographs of the astronauts, their suits are covered in this grey dust, this their um, uh, the lunar uh, rovers are covered in grey dust. And it turns out that the lunar dust smells like gunpowder. Okay. 
Uh, but I, the astronauts were warned not to uh, to try as much as they could not to breathe it in because the tiny glass shards, and remember this is as fine as flour and very easy to breathe in, but the tiny glass shards could damage their lungs. Yep. So it, it smells interesting, but it's potentially hazardous to health. And any attempt to build a moon base has to deal with this ubiquitous, fine, penetrating, abrasive material. So we're going to put our money on Mark Watney on Mars then? Yeah, Mark Watney on Mars might be a much better bet, and it's much easier to grow potatoes on <laughs> in uh, simulated Mars soil than it is to grow it in lunar regio. Thank you very much, Ian. That's a great tangent. We'll keep on going back to your Astro Blogger blog. We'll catch you again next week. Until then, all the best. I hope there are clear skies in between the pummeling rain. Until then, all the best. Thanks very much, Ian. I can't recommend highly enough that you go to Google and find Ian's Astro blog. Just Google Astro Blogger. It's a wonderful blog and it's very up to date and it's got all the latest news and wonderful links. Here is the Astro Fizz News for Wednesday, 21 September 2016. First up, Cathal O'Connell is a science writer for Cosmos magazine based in Melbourne. Has lightning struck twice at the Large Hadron Collider? Using the same data used to discover the Higgs boson in 2012, physicists from South Africa, India and Sweden claim to see evidence of its dark matter counterpart, a new particle the team dubbed the Madala boson. If true, this could be groundbreaking. The long-sought-after connection between particle physics and dark matter, the mysterious stuff that makes up about 85% of the matter of the universe. This new particle, if it exists, would not tell us what dark matter is, but it could help explain why dark matter came to dominate the universe. The Higgs boson, discovered in 2012, gives mass to fundamental particles such as quark. If confirmed, the Madala boson could be like a kind of dark matter version of the Higgs, responsible for giving dark matter its heft. But, as yet, the theory represents the views of only one research group. A draft paper on the work has been uploaded to the RxIV in November and, to date, has received no citations by other physicists, nor has it been subjected to peer review. This research will be looked at intensely and it might get shot down like the faster-than-light neutrino that was shot down by a combination of peer review and self-review. And that is the raw beauty of science. It is never satisfied and looks at itself with with dispassionate scrutiny. So we've included this story, despite the lack of peer review, because it is one of the two biggest problems confronting astrophysics today. The other big one is why is the expansion of the universe accelerating? Dark matter and dark energy are the focus for some of the planet's most brilliant minds, and teams from all over the world are in intense competition to crack open and peer inside dark matter and dark energy. Scientists are tackling these problems on several fronts. High-energy colliders like the LHC Atlas and Super Keck B Bell 2 are pushed to seek answers in subatomic particles. And at the other end of the scale, other scientists are using space-based and ground-based instruments like optical telescopes, X-ray and gamma-ray telescopes, huge radio telescopes like the Rattan 600, the Fast 500 and a Aristobo dishes 
and new huge arrays like the SKA Precursors Meerkat and the Murchison Wide Field Array Pathfinder Project and countless other facilities and labs all over the world are looking at a behaviour of galaxies, galaxy clusters and groups of clusters striving to understand the basic nature of our universe. And we can't leave out the mathematicians, the theoretical physicists and the cosmologists who have the unenviable task of explaining our observations and pointing to new fields of research. The level of excitement in the world of astrophysics is palpable. And now we move from subatomic particles to the stars themselves. The next big story of the week is, of course, the headline news that the Gaia mission is mapping the nature and movements of a billion stars. We love big numbers here at Astrophys, don't we, Nadezhda? Size matters, Brendan. Yes, well, the paper that made all these headlines is published on rxiv.org and the paper can be accessed directly from tinyurlcom forward slash astrophysgaia, all lowercase, all one word as usual. With the target of creating a precise 3D map of our Milky Way galaxy, Gaia has pinned down the precise location on the sky and the brightness of 1.142 million stars. That's just over a billion. And the exact distances and the motions across the sky for more than 2 million stars. That represents less than 1% of the stars in the Milky Way, Brendan. So it is not so big a number after all. Thanks, Nadezhda. You're dead right. Now... Gaia is a cornerstone mission in the science program of the European Space Agency, the ESA. The spacecraft construction was approved in 2006 following a study in which the original interferometry technique was changed to a direct imaging approach. This is called astrometry. Astrometry is the accurate measurement and study of the changing positions of celestial objects. Gaia was launched in December 2013 and parked at the second Lagrange point of the Sun-Earth-Moon system. If you have any number of masses orbiting each other in space, there are several Lagrange points where the gravitational forces from each body are balanced, and so it takes very little energy to keep a satellite parked there. Gaia data releases have begun already, and the data can be retrieved from tinyurlcom forward slash astrophysgaiadata, all one word, all lowercase. This data is denser and not as easily managed for Citizens like the Citizen Science Projects at Galaxy Zoo and Radio Galaxy Zoo, but still we can predict that the data will similarly serve up some surprising results that will challenge our understanding of the Milky Way. An awesome project. Gaia is going to be very, very fruitful. Our next story is for our Aurora watchers, and it's from ESA. The European Space Agency has solved a problem that was preventing us from closely observing the sun's corona because we know there's a lot of interesting physics going on there because that's where the solar wind is born and coronal mass ejections originate. These CMEs fire off as a solar wind full of charged particles which in turn interact with the Earth's magnetosphere and cause auroras. Up until now, 
solar research satellites have masked the blinding surface of the sun by placing a metal disc or coronagraph in front of telescopes and satellite cameras and detectors. However, the light is so intense it's being refracted or bent around the edge of a disc. So our view of the corona is always being contaminated with stray light. So by using coronagraphs to create an artificial eclipse, either on ground telescopes or inside sun-watching satellites, such as SOHO and Stereo A and B, our best views of a corona were really pretty poor quality. The solution? A pair of satellites. The ESA has designed a pair of satellites called Proba 3 and they're set for launch in late 2019. Through precise formation flying, one will cast a shadow across the second to open up an unimpeded view of the inner area of the corona, which is a million times fainter than the blindingly brilliant solar surface itself. While the sun's surface is a comparatively cool 6,000 degrees, the corona averages a sizzling million degrees. The mystery to be unraveled here by this clever design is aimed at working out how energy travels from the cool sun to the hot corona in apparent defiance of the laws of thermodynamics. Thanks ESA, very cool work. We'll enjoy following this story. Next story is from Caltech via Mariella Moon at Engadget. Watch the Milky Way's birth in this Caltech simulation. Supernovae apparently played a huge role in the formation of our galaxy. A team of Caltech astronomers created what could be the most accurate computer simulation of our galaxy's birth. See, according to computations for older simulations, our galaxy should be surrounded by thousands of dwarf galaxies. In reality, though, there are only about 30 dwarf galaxies nearby. Puzzling. Astronomers thought their computations were incorrect because we still don't understand the true nature of dark matter that permeates every corner of the universe. However, the Caltech team found out that it's not dark matter that's a problem. Their computations were able to achieve the current state of our galaxy simply by incorporating the effects of supernovae. In order to create the simulation, which you can watch at tinyurlcom forward slash astrophysgalaxy, the team used 2,000 computers to crunch data. It took a whopping 700,000 CPU hours for all those computers to complete the task. Though, it could have been worse. According to Popular Mechanics, it would have taken a single computer 80 years to do the same thing. I wonder what the team at Swinburne's Department of Astrophysics and Supercomputing will make of this work. Some theoretical astrophysicists and cosmologists will be looking carefully at this work. Meanwhile, for us, it's great viewing at tinyearl.com forward slash astrophysgalaxy. Next is a story, a local story. Australia to embrace the new era of gravitational wave astronomy from theconversation.com. The story was written by Dr. Matthew Bales, ARC Laureate Fellow, who works for Swinburne University of Technology, the host of OzGrav. Dr. Bales receives ARC funding from the Australian Research Council. 
400 years ago, Galileo pointed a telescope at Jupiter and saw electromagnetic waves, light, being reflected off its moons. This profound observation displaced Earth from its position at the centre of the universe to just one planet among many. It also sparked a new golden era of optical astronomy, which continues to this day. In September 2015, the Advanced Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, LIGO, detected the gravitational waves emitted by two coalescing black holes. This remarkable discovery opened up a new window on the universe, using gravitational waves waves rather than electromagnetic waves to peer into the far reaches of the cosmos. Now I'm going to diverge from Dr. Bale's original story in the conversation just a little bit. A new Australian research project team called OSGRAV, headed by Dr. Bale, consists of scientists who will aid in the enhancement of a LIGO detector so that it is even more sensitive, using amazing tricks such as quantum squeezing. The OSGRAV team will design and construct the next generation of gravity wave detectors that have the capacity to detect thousands of events per year. How? They just got approval for $31.3 million to further investigate gravitational wave. Their project is called the ARC Centre of Excellence for Gravitational Wave Discovery. The success of this funding application is due to A. A well-written proposal in Times New Roman, not Comic Sans. B. The team already has many runs on the galactic chessboard. C. Because two billion years ago. C. Because a billion years ago in a galaxy far, far away, two black holes some 30 times the mass of our sun tore each other up part, releasing gravitational waves in the process. D, they can do amazing tricks like quantum squeezing. E, all of the above. If you selected E, give yourself one mark and enjoy watching this new field of observational astronomy emerge. As a postscript, LIGO type detectors aren't the only detectors capable of discovering gravitational waves. Radio astronomers can use neutron stars, pulsars, that rotate many hundreds of times per second to detect disturbances in the space-time continuum, induced by the gravitational waves coming from supermassive black holes. OSGRAV engineers are currently designing the supercomputers that will monitor dozens of these stars using the Square Kilometre Array. The CSIRO's Parkes Telescope is also having a powerful new receiver fitted to it to continue its leading role in this area of science. Our next story is for Melbourne Astrophiles via CosmosMagazine.com again. Two public lectures for you. Are you accelerated by extraterrestrial life, stoked by spacesuits? If you're in Melbourne, Australia at the end of September, be sure to check out these public lectures held alongside the 16th Australian Space Research Conference, which I'm going to next week. On Saturday 24 September, astrobiologist John D. Horner from the University of Southern Queensland will talk about exoplanets and life beyond our solar system. It will be held at the Planetarium at ScienceWorks in Spotswood. And on Wednesday 28th of September, RMIT engineer James Waldy will discuss the ins and outs of the next generation of spacesuits. This lecture is free and starts at 6.30 at RMIT Story Hall on Swanson Street. But get there early to snare a seat. For more information, go to the Australian Space Research Conference website. Our final story is Dish at Parks serves up the answer 
to one of life's greatest mysteries by Eamon Birmingham on the CSIRO blog. The astrophysics world holds the dish at Parks dear to its heart because the dish was the prime receiver for the TV signals that brought the moon landings into the world's living rooms back in 1969. Now back to Eamon's story. Have a look at your two hands. Even though they are mirror images of each other, they don't exactly match. Try putting a left-handed glove on your right hand. Similarly, certain molecules come in seemingly identical pairs, although they cannot be superimposed onto each other. It's a chemical property known as chirality. Using sensitive radio telescopes including our very own dish at Parks, a team of international scientists have, for the first time, discovered a chiral molecule outside of our solar system. Still listening? Good, this next bit is important. You see, life on Earth is made up of groups of chiral molecules that share just one-handedness. For example, the amino acids that make up your proteins only exist in the left-handed form while the sugars found in DNA are exclusively right-handed. This bias towards one type of handedness is known as homochirality, and it's one of the deepest and longest-standing unsolved mysteries in biology. Scientists believe that processes taking place in outer space, not here on Earth, hold the key to unlocking this mystery, which is why discovering a handed molecule outside of our solar system is such a coup, and it's such a complex molecule. Scientists from the U.S. National Radio Astronomy Observatory and the California Institute of Technology made the discovery by aiming two radio telescopes, the Dish at Parks and the Green Bank Telescope in Western Virginia, near the centre of our Milky Way galaxy at an interstellar cloud, Sagittarius B2, a cool 26,000 light-years away, basically next door in cosmic terms. The radio waves they detected bore the fingerprints of a chiral molecule propylene oxides and now the most complex molecule yet found in space. We've found water, we've found carbon dioxide, so we've found similar but simple molecules. Now we're ramping up the complexity and the fun is just beginning. With a task somewhat mimicking the role of political pollsters, the next job for the scientists is to figure out if these molecules they've detected are mostly lefties or righties. Thank you, Eamon Birmingham, for that story. And once again, we're reminded, by looking carefully at things far away, we can better understand things that are right at hand. That was the Astrophys News for Wednesday, 21 September 2016. Happy Equinox, everyone. And that was Astrophys for this week. See you next week. Radio Wave.